0: This is Nice Ace Now, your source for real-time and on-demand professional learning, designed specifically with the independent school educator in mind. A podcast of interviews, seminars, and conference talks to listen to whenever and wherever you like. Brought to you by the New York State Association of Independent Schools, I'm George Swain. In this May 2018 e-seminar, NAIS General Counsel, Deborah Wilson, discusses the major recommendations outlined in the landmark NAIS TAPS report on preventing and responding to educator sexual misconduct and abuse.
1: So thank you for joining us today to talk about this important topic. Um, I, as you might imagine with the task force, um, I've been talking about this quite a bit and, One of the things that schools ask me, and where this sort of idea came from, is um, there's a lot in this report. So, so kind of where's our bang for the buck? Where where should we start? Because there's a lot of recommendations in here. There are a lot of things to think about. So where should we begin? Um, and so I want to talk about the report generally, but I'm going to highlight just some of the areas that I think schools probably struggle with the most. That you're probably doing, frankly, the worst job in and get you moving in the right direction to start thinking proactively about it. Um, hopefully, you know, we pulled together this task force. We, we, we were worried you know, over time between Penn State, the focus from the spotlight team in Boston, particularly on our schools, and the number of older reports coming out, we really felt that working with TABS made sense as an industry to put out a statement about how important student safety really is to our schools. Um, and to really come at this from that, that direction, to say, OK, we're actually finally going to pull together people, you know, victims, advocates, survivors themselves, school leaders, people who work exclusively in this area, one guy in this task force. What he does is interview predators and opportunists who prey on children. to so just get that expertise in the room and take advantage of that time together to pull together this report. Um, these are our task force members. Uh, several heads of school association folks. Um, Lisa Friel was actually in New York for a, a long time. She works for the NHL now. Um, I have to tell you, like, she was actually shy about telling me that she was, uh, she worked for the NFL. She was shy about telling me that because I was so disappointed to lose her now um, because she did such great work with our schools. And, um, you know, so a really dedicated group. And then we had all these staff folks, uh, you know, helping move this initiative forward. A lot of you have probably seen some of the data. This is the liability data on assault claims. Um, When it comes down to assault claims, that's 90% of the actual dollars paid. And this doesn't include places where schools provide some kind of remuneration to survivors long after statute of limitations have run. Um, So this is just the claims that United Educators knows about. All of my guy friends who are in the education field, that's second so last bullet there, really drives them kind of crazy, and I'm sorry, guys, that I feel like whenever I put this up, it puts you all kind of under the microscope that much closer, Um, but this is generally the stat that's out there. Um, Again, unprecedented number of stories in the press, and pretty regular letters and investigations, our schools will sometimes find that they're bumping into each other in the field while doing investigations of a claim that somebody has come forward, particularly those older cases. And we know the long-term effects of abuse. Um, What I tell schools, whenever they're, if you're wrestling with a tough HR issue, if you're concerned that somebody might be abusing kids, everybody only has one shot at their education, right? So, you know, we sort of see kids as a river kind of moving along, but whatever happens to them, particularly in those formative years, has such an incredible lifelong impact on them And if any of you have talked with survivors, talked with victims, and there is a mindset shift between the two, the impact that this kind of abuse can have on those kids is pretty profound. Um, Well, well, well into adulthood. Um, So the report itself, we have these draft recommendations. We put those out in August of 2017. We kept that period open through mid-October, and we sort of did this in some ways like the federal government, as some of you may know. I try not to model the, my practices after the federal government too closely, but we really wanted feedback from the schools, saying like, here's the report as it stands now. What's, what's the feedback? And we knew frankly that the press might look at it, so we didn't do it under the cover of night or anything like that. We just stuck it out there and said, okay, like, let's, um, let's get this in here. We talked with attorneys and insurance people, you name it. And um, we did the final versions late 2017, 2018, and it's now live. And all the schools, all NES member schools, TABS member schools should receive two copies. And the PDF is open on the website. If you catch me presenting someplace, I hand out free copies of it all the time. And um, so it's pretty live. The, for those of you who saw the old version or were curious about the new version, a couple of things that we revisited, the committee structures, some of the feedback we got was the first version If you're a small school and you only have like two administrators and 15 or 20 teachers, it's hard to have five teams running around your school managing these issues. So we revisited that. Uh, A lot of schools concerned about the physical space review because it can be expensive to retrofit space for safety issues. And if you're a historic school and you have buildings that fall under historic uh, guidelines, you can't just randomly renovate, you have to go through certain processes and that also is either impossible or gets expensive. And then this observable and interruptible, particularly the boarding schools, this was a a tough thing for them to get their heads around. Generally speaking, you do want to keep things observable and interruptible. Uh, Darkness to Light is a group that does a lot of work in this area. And they have this great rule, and it's two and you. So it's either two adults and the kid or two kids and the adult. But there's always kind of that third party triangulation. Um, So that's always, you know, kind of the case. Or you're someplace that somebody could readily walk in on wherever you are. Obviously, that varies a little bit as kids get older, so how you are with five-year-olds observable and interruptible is a little bit different than how you are with 15 or 16-year-olds observable and interruptible. Um, The role of the board is always sort of a question, we talk about that in a little bit, but we sort of expounded on that. The technology recommendations are really hard for schools, we clarified those, but we frankly didn't really change them much. And this is the hardest, one of the hardest things for our schools. If you can get a handle on this, this is a good place to get a handle on things. Um, kids love to text, particularly those high school kids, and they live on their phones. So everybody loves to text them because they know that you're gonna, they're going to see it. But to use something like Remind, and we're looking at a couple of other apps, that it sort of still makes it through the school platform, just keeps it on the up and up. Um, and then we reorganize the report a little. To. So just a couple things to be aware of with the report generally. Um, when you get sued in this area for an active claim right now that hasn't passed the statute of limitations, generally speaking, it's for a negligence claim. And so one thing you really do have to know is this report does pull together standards of care from a lot of dis- different industry standards. That technology piece, is- ISTE has for the last decade recommended that teachers not connect with kids on social media, that things be through school platforms. So that's not a new thing, but we've pulled that into this report. So it pulls that into a lot of places. So it's really important for you as a school to be aware of what those negligence standards can now look like. So on the hiring front, if you have hiring practices that are not in alignment with what's in this report, you need to kind of get in alignment or have a good business reason for why you don't. same with some of these other things. The hiring one, we're going to spend some time on because that is a bank for your buck kind of area. Accrediting bodies, and George, I think, and ISACE is part of this too, are moving much more so towards implementing student safety, student protection criteria on this front. And then there has been an overall shift in communications expectations, which this report gets into, but we... Um, We're just seeing it as an industry standard across the board. George, did you want to say anything about the NICE standards? Have you adopted that yet?
0: Uh, Sure, Um, I will. The NICE Board of Trustees has approved a set of principles of best practice in the area of educator sexual misconduct and abuse. Um, The report that you're describing was very informative and very helpful to the board as they worked with counsel to generate those principles. The next step that we anticipate in the process is the NISA Commission on Accreditation, which is a subcommittee of the NISA board, is going to be working on aligning the criteria for accreditation with relevant aspects of the principles for best practice. So not all of them will be translated into criteria for accreditation, but some may be and some will and all will definitely influence the accreditation process in some meaningful way.
1: Excellent. Thank you for that. And that's consistent around the country. This is what a lot of the associations that accredit are doing. And you want to pay attention to those principles for good practice because that also becomes another standard out there to which your school can be held. The joy of best practices is a lot of times they're, they're couched in aspirational terms, so they're not used, they're, they're not as able to be used quite the same way. And it's also why we have this report in more of the recommendation form than uh, you must absolutely do this because it, it gives schools a little leeway on that front. But make no mistake that these changes are in fact creating expectations in the field that schools will be taking these steps. So I'm going to start with prevention. We'll walk through this and then I'm going to open it up for any questions. We'll go through a response and then we're going to just walk through maybe a couple scenarios um, to, to talk it through. So. Might have, many of you might know, I've become a little bit of a risk management junkie, and that's how this is structured, is really taking a risk management approach to child safety from the prevention standpoint. Um, so you want a base team. It can be an individual that drives that team, but you want a group of people who are really looking at everything in your school about student safety, knowing where your policies are, knowing where you have holes, and developing to, to get those holes in, fixed up and in place. Like, do you have a babysitting, you know, rule that you either don't allow babysitting, which a lot of schools have moved to, or if you allow babysitting, the school must know about it, the parents sign something, all of those kinds of ins and outs. Um, I like the team approach because I think it gives you a more well-rounded look at everything that's happening in the school. And um, these are some of the key policies that a lot of schools tend to have underneath them. So you identify the, the team, you identify all the pieces, you meet with the stakeholders, you get everything in place, you train, and then you repeat. And you just kind of keep cycling through. So you know, if you launch a new program, say that suddenly you've got a trip going to Spain or something, what does that look like from a supervisor's standpoint? Like how many adults per kid, the hotel rooms, all of that stuff, how does that fit within your overall safety prevention plan? So it always kind of gets through this filter. Um, one of the biggest bangs for your buck, frankly, from a school standpoint, and one of the things we learned from Greg Dwyer, and this is not in the report, but schools have been adopting this as more and more of a best practice. So predators and opportunists, they're looking for holes in the system, right? They're looking for the busy parents who need somebody to fill in. They're looking for the kid that nobody else has bonded with. And so for you as a school to have a system by which you're sort of tracking those kids, whether it's an advisor system, some way of kind of knowing the kids who aren't well connected to other things and whose parents might not be totally checked in, um, they're going to be sort of your poster children for who these folks are going after, uh, because they're the most vulnerable kids in your population. I see a couple chat questions, so I'm just going to check those quick. Yes, babysitting by teachers or teachers and students. Um, The student part is not as big of a deal, it's the teachers that you kind of put your sort of emblem of approval on. And so um, that that has become a big issue, particularly for high schoolers, like when parents want teachers, particularly your younger teachers, to take the kids away for spring break, tends to be a big one. Um, So this is one place, and some schools just do a really basic thing, where if you've got a smaller school, a smaller, um, student population, you say, okay, who knows, this, who, who knows these kids really well, and if each kid doesn't have two people or three people, adults, who really know that kid and know what that kid's life is like and how they're progressing through your school, then the school makes a concerted effort to make sure that more people are familiar with that kid and what that kid's life is like. Um, prevention special scenarios. So... By a long shot, all of these extraneous external people who come onto your campus, your coaches, your part time physical therapists, your volunteers, trip leaders, assistant coaches, particularly the young assistant coaches or your like assistant lacrosse coach that you just acquired two weeks ago to to bring on campus that's where the bulk of your risk tends to be, and that's where they're looking for opportunities to get into your world and get close to kids so Really working with that group, making sure they're going through the training, making sure they understand your boundary protocols and and drilling down on them so that they're not totally outside the normal functioning of your school. That is often the call that I get about schools. They find out that some assistant coach has been kind of bouncing around from rec league to rec league churches and things like that. So you want to make sure that you're incorporating them into your practices. Schools tend to have gotten better about teachers and teacher training and tracking the teachers, but it's these outside people that are tending to cause more issues. Um, Background check, supervision, that kind of thing. The online piece, again, this is more bang for your buck. Current day claims, situations that come up the texting gets out of control. We had one case in the, middle, in the Midwest where it was an outside consultant who had texted with one student 2,500 times in six weeks. Um, so your ability to, to drop in, and it's, it's just like the physical piece, You know when we talk about open and observable, the reason that you want them using school email or being on a map like Remind that you can track is at any given time you can kind of pop into that conversation and see what it looks like and see what's going back and forth. The social media question I get a lot from athletic coaches. They want to engage with the students on social media. It's fine to have like a basketball team have a page on Facebook, but it shouldn't be friending and they shouldn't be having these, the ability to have these one-off private messaging kind of thing. I always feel like a little bit of an idiot being clear about no porn, no sexually suggestive communications. But what I've also found is that every time that I think it doesn't need to be said, it really does need to be said. <laughs> like, there's some really, particularly people who've never been in a professional setting, they might be right out of college, they don't understand how to keep those professional boundaries up. And being very clear about this in your own policies, and your own practices, it's such an easy thing to do, but you want that clarity in there. Um, so one of the things the report really recommends, and this is a pretty easy lift for most school, are creating standards of conduct or codes of conduct or expectations of professional behavior. And what you'll find is in your school handbooks and a lot of the documentation you have, you've already got these in there. Like, what do you expect from the adults in your school? These just pull them together, and it gives you a place to have a conversation about those things that are getting slightly weird, but nothing has happened yet. And with some teachers, what they need is professional guidance to maintaining professional boundaries. And other people are opportunists and they're looking across the line. And this gives you a place to start that conversation. So building some of the principles and behavioral expectations, laying out what some things of prohibited conduct look like. And I really, I'm not a big don't hug kids fan or all that stuff, but, but just more here are are our expectations, and if you're a K-12 school, they can be different from the lower school to the upper school. Um, They can make some shifts. I know some schools that have some uh, examples of that that I can share with you. Being clear about the consequences for the violations, and then that last one, the acknowledgement of the obligations. This is like that handbook acknowledgement Like you probably have, everybody signs off on the handbook, but you probably have three or four things that they specifically acknowledge. You want them to specifically acknowledge this. Because the whole point of this is to give you a place to have a conversation and then you can take it to disciplinary level if you need to. And you don't want any question about whether they saw this when it's all said and done. Um, Examples of some guiding principles. This is just what some different schools sort of have in place. Um, The promote the development of good character, honesty, and integrity. A lot of times you can tie that into your mission. But it's, it's sort of the hard work of parenting, right? It's making sure that they're always being on and they're always being the adult of the room. That follow and enforcing school policies, this is um, where a lot of adults will lead kids kind of down the path, as they're sort of entering into rule breaking with the kids. And so being very clear about that and that you're there to hold it is really important. Um, again, examples of prohibited contract, Condu- conduct. you would think that you don't have to say sexual activity of any kind, but we're not going to have a, um, a Bill Clinton moment here. Like we're not going to talk about what is sex. Like just n- none of that, including innuendo. Um, blackmailing students sounds kind of funny, but sometimes these things do start with, if you don't do X, I'm going to tell that you e do Y. Um, so and you can use whatever language you want, but that's, this is the kind of thing that you want to get out there in terms of prohibiting. Um, So supervision and training, we all do training pretty well. One of the biggest questions I get from schools is, it's really boring. We always do this in the back to school, in-service training. Teachers are always in the back doing their first lesson plan. Some people fall asleep. You've got a lawyer up there putting fear of God in people and it's not very interesting. Do better with that. Um, Provide interesting interactive training about gray areas and what ifs. Like give teachers the ability to ask questions so that when they see examples of violations of the Code of Conduct, like where do they go, what does that look like, and what does that mean, even if it makes you uncomfortable as an administrator. Um, and I've got examples of these that you're welcome to use as tabletop exercises with your staff, and it kind of walks through that here are the things to think about. But this is an area where I think we, we can improve. We do it. We check the box. But, but make sure that you're getting those questions out there, and they understand that you're serious about it. So that to me is a, it's a pretty low-lying food that you can do, you can just start doing it this summer. Um, Be aware of your state-mandated training, Pennsylvania in particular has gone totally overboard on on that front, like it's a very specific training protocol, but always stay on top of that piece. And again, provide that training all around, particularly parents if you've got that overnight, Trips and things like that, make sure that they're trained on this, because they do tend to get a little bit off the rails. Um, Ongoing supervision, this is just the check-in process. But you really want to be clear in your school about how people can report not just true malfeasance, but concerning behavior, and what will happen in that scenario. Does anybody have any questions about that, all of that part? Anyone? Anyone?
0: And remember, all you need to do is unmute your microphone, lower left-hand corner. I have a uh, quick question. Sure. Um, What do you think about online training?
1: Um, I think that online training can be good if you're hiring somebody, you need to get them trained, they're starting on Tuesday, and you want to make sure they get the online training. I think that you can't, it's, it's better to do something in person, particularly with teachers. Um, most online trainings now, they have a quiz and stuff built into it, so I think that's a plus. Most online training, though, is not training to your protocols. Right. So if Philip has an online training thing, it's not going to say, you know, this is what the school requires, here's where the reporting goes, here is our um, code of conduct, like it doesn't walk through those pieces. So I think it's a fine band-aid approach if you're getting somebody started, but you eventually want to get them trained on your school's specific obligations.
0: Just thinking if we're going to train every year, um, is there a way to alternate or to... some years just the new people some year everybody i'm just trying to not have people sit in the back of the room and fall asleep and i don't know i'm just looking for options
1: yeah i um i actually like the fast hit training in some ways so like if you have a training for new employees and that you could videotape and do online and we're actually moving to this more at neis like it's i don't know if any of you've seen the wendy's beverage commercial or wendy's beverage training videos like you know, so you've got a training video on your code of conduct, your stuff. And you can even build in a quiz to it or something like that. So that becomes your new training. And maybe if you have a big group starting, you can do a big training all at once. But then throughout the year, like you might only do, you might do a reminder on policies and then maybe do a half an hour of some quick roundtable conversations. And you might do it even a couple times during the year. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty quick conversation but it's not necessarily two hours of where do you report and what are your obligations under state law. So I think you can mix that up. Thank you. Yeah. Yes.
0: I have a question. Yeah. I'm Ben. Um, Hi, Ben. Hi. So um, in your list of people who you suggest that we get trained, you included parents, volunteers. And I'm wondering about um, how extensive, what you mean by that in terms of, is it any time a parent comes into the school to you know do a birthday party with their kids or is it a parent who's volunteering on a regular basis like are we expected to have all parents in our community since they're likely to engage with other people's kids at some point to be trained in this area and if so like how does the school go about making that happen yeah
1: <laughs> i think um... It's a pretty common question. I get about background checks with parents too, although some schools are now doing like that auto background check when somebody just walks in the door. Um, it's, it's more on the volunteer front are they going to be in a potentially, in a, in a role to be potentially with students unsupervised? Um, or they're what I consider a super volunteer, right? Like, so kids don't differentiate between volunteers, employees, and other things. Like, they don't. If you ask my eight year old, is her reading buddy a teacher? She says yes but that's a volunteer that sits with her in the hallway and reads books with her, but she doesn't make that distinction. But it's somebody she sees regularly enough that they're part of sort of the school protocol. That person still might not go through the full training that you provide to your full-time staff, so you might have an abbreviated version of that and have special rules about how teachers keep an eye on those people within your school, which sort of offsets the risk of having that person on there, but you still do sort of a short training with them. And you might have a totally different training for overnight volunteer chaperone type things. Um, I have seen schools, like if Darkness to Light does like a train the trainer type thing. And so they'll have a parent night, you know, would you like to be trained on this? Do you want to learn more Then come to this night? And it's like 10 bucks a person or something like that. So it's it's the kind of thing that you can do, but you might not require training for all parents. Like, you know, there's always that one problem parent, it's usually me, um, that you just can't round up for whatever the time is. Other questions? Okay. Um, So the prevention, the hiring piece, um, and we all know this, right? So hiring and evaluation, we don't do this very well. But hiring in particular, we're kind of all over the map. We need to do better about interviewing, reference checks, and background checks. So we sort of suspected this was the case, but then we sent out a survey while the task force was meeting um, over the course of that year. Um, So do you have a written process for hiring? 50% of our schools don't. Um, Do you provide any kind of effective interview training for staff? For the most part, no. Um, I got to tell you, that latter one freaks me out as an attorney, because you you set the English department loose on a candidate, and they all go out to lunch, and God knows what's actually happening in that conversation. So the reference questions, does your school provide reference questions that must be asked of each reference? Again, no. Um, And the policy about who in the school may provide references, like you really want a policy about that too. Because if any teacher can just randomly give references and they don't know that person's history or why they left your school, that's opening you up to some liability. So these are kind of key things that we really want to clean up as an industry that if there were a place that we could just start making changes quickly this would be it Um, and it's not changing very fast even in the northeast we got a call from a northeastern school three of the school's teachers have been hired away two by private schools one by a public school and the public school is the only school that called for reference on those employees so it is a place where we need to do better um, you're checking for prior convictions. Most of the time, active predators don't have a conviction on there because they know you're going to do a background check. Um, this disciplinary action by licensing organization. So there's a, there's a group that has formerly been for just public schools. And I'll share the link with George. It's called NASDEC. And what they do is they're the only national organization that tracks ding on, dings on public school licensing. And this was brought to my attention by a prosecutor in Massachusetts who said, you know, what we see is that when a teacher is in the public schools and they lose their license or they have a strike against your license, you're not going to get hired again. They go to work for the private schools. So 500 bucks a year, you can access their database and you know if they've got a ding on their licensing, and then you talk to the state and the state will tell you exactly what happened. So that's a really useful, again, pretty easy thing to do. And a bunch of you can band together. They do it by school district. They're still in sort of public school mindset. So if all the schools in New York City or Albany or whoever came together, you could just have like one login and everybody could use it. Um, Removal from asking for removal from any position due to allegations of misconduct. But this written authorization and waiver for references is key. Um, Just getting anybody who applies that provide you, you with a waiver to not, not just talk to their list of references, but anybody else within that strand of employment, um, but also a waiver so that the references can provide you with a true, full, and complete overview of that person's time with their organization. Um, some schools will ask for that, and this helps, so if you call somebody for a reference and they say, we just do name, rank, and throw the number, you can say, hey, I've got a waiver for the, from this person. And if they still won't answer, that probably tells you something about what happened at that school. And if your candidate won't sign the waiver, then that tells you something, too. Um, And note that some states, and I don't know what it is in New York right now, are moving towards an affirmative obligation to disclose potential harm to children. Connecticut is moving in this direction. I think Pennsylvania is moving in this direction. Oregon is already there. Other states are adopting this. So if you are approached for reference and you actually know that the person's potentially harmful to children, there's a state imposed liability to disclose that to the other school. And we've actually, we've had one school that had not just secondary liability, but tertiary liability for passing on an educator that they knew to be harmful to children. So that's a a pretty big deal there. Um, On the NAS website, and I'm happy to provide it to any of you who are here, even if you're not an NAS member, just by virtue of being here, we actually have a document that walks through the waivers and references and provides a sample form if you're interested in it. Um, Interview questions that you can ask. None of this stuff is off the table. None of it is protected. Um, you can ask, you know, have you ever been involved in a situation where you've been accused of of children or neglect of children? Any of these are in there. Prevention reference uh, questions. Do you have any concerns about this individual working unsupervised with children? Um, do you feel this person is mature enough to handle this position? You can ask about the code of conduct. Any concerns? But be forthright. Go ahead and, and really ask the questions, and be consistent so that you're asking it for every person, including the head of school. Um, Things to look for, you guys probably know a lot of this, and again, these, I think these are pretty easy to implement, and you just make sure that you do them every single time. It's that consistency in your process. Um, Gaps you cannot fill, look for that international candidate. I've actually been starting to work with the international associations because what happens is people jump from country to country and there are no background checks that are gonna catch a lot of that activity. And I've had a couple calls from international schools that know somebody's harmful and is now working in a US-based school. So really follow up on that international piece. Take the time to set up those reference calls. Um, And then finally, in terms of prevention, Before anything can possibly happen, know who you would call together if something did happen. So if in these systems, reporting comes in either from staff or from a student, who in your school, who are those first three or four people that you're going to pull together to talk about this? And before something happens, know what your insurance policies are, because a lot of these insurance policies, particularly for older cases, are of the time of the occurrence, not at the time of the Insurance companies are not excited about sharing that information with you 20 years later about whether they insured you or not. So you want to kind of line that up early. So that's it for prevention. I'm going to stop my share again. Any questions on that, particularly on the hiring and reference front? Let's see here. Uh, One question, uh, don't you think it is the hiring school that should set the standard for references, not the leaving school? Um, Yes, it is definitely the hiring school, but the school from which the person came might want that coverage of the waiver that you get from the person upon whom you're checking. So, um, if Phil calls Ben, and he's like, I got a great candidate who worked for you five years ago, Ben's going to be like, that guy was a total mess, but I'm not going to tell Phil that unless Phil has some kind of a waiver if Ben doesn't already have one um, and so, so Phil can either fax it to him and then Ben can say, actually, I want this guy to fill out my own waiver and that's fine too. Um, but, but getting those reference waivers helps you talk to the other school and say, hey, I've got this. And you as a school, if you're providing the reference, you can ask for a copy of it and keep it on file so that if you're worried about that coming back to bite you that you've got a copy of. it. Let's see, I feel like there was another one on here. Other, other questions on this front? Anyone? All right, let's talk about response a little bit. Um, so response, in some ways, um, it's certainly more traumatic. It's really hard to be in a crisis and work through these things. But it, there is a certain formula that has worked out now. Um, this first one, no one followed the law without exception. This is a lot harder than you think it is, particularly when you've got an older case and somebody's no longer a minor and all of this stuff. When in doubt, report. And even if the person that you're reporting to is like, we're not going to take that report, you just say, oh, that's fine. Um, Can I just have your name? And then you just document up that you made that phone call. Um, years ago, we actually had a board indicted for failure to report and they had reported, but nobody had documented it. So just document the daylights out of that. Um, the troubled child. child that nobody likes is going to be the one that makes the complaint. Don't get sucked into that trap. Always be aware that any complaint is most likely valid. There are very, very few false complaints out there. Um, And then the confidentiality and privacy issues are the other places where we run into just bumps in the road. If you're not protecting um, particularly of the potential victims, but also if you do have a false report with the, with the person who's accused. Um, this, is a, this is a quick response thing, which is why you want to build the muscle memory for who are you going to call, who's in the room, who's talking to the board, who on the board knows, when does that happen, and do that advance work with your board so they'll know how that will unfold if something comes up, um, just so that you're, you were just rolling it out. You know who the attorney is that you're gonna call, you know your PR firm, you've got all of that in place and it's just easy. Um, don't interview a student or witnesses because you're usually not trained to do it. You might have that initial conversation where you're taking in information, but don't get too in the weeds on it, particularly if it's a current case and you're gonna be calling law enforcement anyway um, because it's, it's more than we're generally prepared to do And and it tends to muddy the waters a little bit. Um, Dealing with the accused is really, this can be a really tricky issue, particularly if the student is currently at your school, because sometimes law enforcement will say they want to talk to them first. Um, So you have to be ready for that, but you also have to be ready to stand your ground if the safety of students is even remotely in the mix. We've had a few schools have really messy situations where the police wanted to put everything, they wanted the school to put everything on hold and the school was worried about student safety. You do not have to do that for the police to put everything on hold. You can move ahead. You want to do it in a smart way, but the safety of students always comes first. Investigations, you're only gonna get into if the police are not following up on it. You're generally not gonna have an investigation going on if the authorities are actively involved in the scenario. This is really hard when the authorities say they're going to do something, but it's gonna take them three to four weeks and you have a teacher who's on leave. Um, but it's just sort of how it's gonna, gonna go because nobody's actually gonna tell you too much if you start with an investigator anyway, but just know that you might have that hang time. Um, you want the outside third party investigator, you want your attorney to hire that person most of the time because that covers it up your attorney client privilege. And, um, and, and work through this cycle. A word on your school's attorney. And this is a pretty light lift in terms of identifying an attorney early. If you have a standard school attorney, make sure that they've actually dealt with this situation before if you're going to use them. Um, If you've got a general employment attorney, they're great, but this is not an employment harassment type claim. Sometimes attorneys think that they can do this, they really can't do this because you do have this criminal element going on and it's a huge school stewardship reputation community piece that they're probably not going to be ready for. The other thing you have to look at is if this was an older case, if something came forward, were they at all involved in managing anything about That disciplinary issue because then they don't you don't want them involved in managing this. Um, If they're on the board they shouldn't be representing your school and then you really want to think about how are they perceived in your school community and how is the attorney potentially perceived by the board because you want the board to respect where this person is coming from. That school attorney piece is really important when it comes to representation during this so make sure you think long and hard about it. Um, And then communications, as I said, this has shifted a lot. That transparency, the openness, I'm sure many of you have read the reports that schools have put out. Um, You want that regularity of communication with victims and survivors and the communication with the community as a whole. Even if nothing is happening, just that regular every six weeks you put something out there that says, you know, we're still investigating, we're still looking at this. You know, you're updating updating a website, whatever it is. You're just constantly circling back. And this is sort of generally covered, but again, just always beating that drum. Um, the older cases are a little bit different because you're looking at the statute of limitations, and this is generally where you're going to be doing your own investigation. These can get really, really broad and really expensive very quickly. Um, And a lot of times you'll be dealing with older cultural issues within your school, particularly from the 70s and 80s, about what was acceptable from a cultural standpoint. Um, So just understand what those older cases can look like in your school. And then in terms of the response, like I said, a lot of schools, even if something is out of the statute of limitations, they're providing counseling for victims. They might set up funds so that, that, that victims or survivors can get, obtain counseling, financial payouts, public support and payments, um, having victims on advisory panels. I've got a school that's looking at this right now to really look at the school's approach to preventing sexual abuse, uh, community statements, and then, again, further follow-up support and communications. What I'll tell you in working with schools on this is this doesn't go away. So if this happened in 2000, and you did all kinds of settlements and you created counseling and things like that, you could find your school in a documentary 18 years later, and you are still managing the messaging, talking to survivors, talking to classmates of survivors. You will always be managing the history of what happened, particularly in older cases, and particularly ones that are so incredibly huge. A lot of you probably saw that Michigan State just like they announced it. I think it was 300 million dollars that they're paying to the victims for machine. 500 million. Thank you, George. Like, it's um, when they're big and they're wide ranging. This really becomes part of your institutional history, and you always have to remember that because it will keep coming back, even if you do your best possible approach, best possible support. It does become part of your history. Um, and again, this sort of goes with the last slide in terms of helping survivors, survivors heal. And then you've got to work with your community. Um, you're going to have ongoing education and it, it does, you've got to make it part of that risk prevention conversation, but also keeping, making sure that the community knows what you're doing to help the survivors heal and help the community heal and that you're keeping students safe. And so it goes back to that risk management cycle again. Um, So just for fun, I want to do a quick case study. You are the assistant head of school. Your daughter April is a sophomore this year. She's told you that her friend Samantha seems to spend a lot of time with the girl swim coach, Mr. Hayden. Samantha is a swimmer, so this isn't unusual when you point that out. Your daughter rolls her eyes and says, Mom, you know what I mean. They go places, hang out and stuff. And then she won't say anything else. What do you do and what happens at your school? And I, I think it depends a little bit what you find out. Yeah. Um, you know, what's interesting when you talk to, I use this scenario with a couple of boards and the boards always want to know when do the parents know, um, you know, like when do you call the parents that this has come up? Like, what's the issue? Um, and what's really interesting, if you do this and you've changed the perspective to you are a board member and you ask boards about that because they get very confused about when are they a parent and when are they a board member? Like, would they report this in? Um, so who knows what and when, who's involved initially, and it's hard, right, because we have so many rumors flying around our school, like what do you follow up on in a big way, quickly, you know, parents, board, that kind of thing, and then where do you, you know, have, a, have an initial conversation? Um, you know, you would report to the head, head will probably tell at least the board chair, hey, this has come up, this is what we've done, Um, Some schools will do like a little mini investigation. They'll pull all the emails and communications between these two people just to see kind of what's there and what's going on Um, and then kind of take it to the next level. So and you talk to the student, right? So the student tells the head of school that she and Mr. Hayden have gone to Starbucks for coffee and out to meals. Her parents have hired him to babysit for her and her younger sister. April and another friend say that Samantha has told them that she and Mr. Hayden made out on the couch during one of these evenings. The head makes a report, but the police are not planning on following up. And Samantha's parents think that Samantha has a crush on Mr. Hayden, and he would, quote, never do anything. Does the school do a further investigation? Does a letter, letter get sent to the community community and what happens with Mr. Hayden? Um, so there's probably no like legal report. Like you've done the report, nobody's following up. I agree with Jackson, like you're gonna look at it more closely. Um, And you don't know about this, like, making out thing. That's going to, it's almost like a student-on-student sexual assault. Like, they're usually both drunk, and nobody actually really knows what happens. And it makes it a really hard thing to see what's going on here. It would be interesting to see that schools who've been through a sex abuse claim of some kind, if they would just let this person go just on rumors and innuendo. And a lot of schools, I think, really would. Um, and, And they would be following up on that if somebody called and asked for a reference. So let's move on to this. You've now been retired from teaching for 10 years. You always felt bad about the Mr. Hayden business because he was an amazing teacher for your son and inspired him to become the successful engineer he is today. Nothing conclusive was ever determined and no further allegations were made as far as you know. You just received a voicemail from someone who notes that Mr. Hayden put you down as a reference for him since you were serving on the board at the time or you were serving as a staff member at the time and were familiar with his service to the school. What happens next? And this is where the reference thing is really, really important, right? Because nobody knows, you know, staff members don't know what happens when somebody leaves school and driving that home with staff members, you can set up your reference system, however you want to do it. So if somebody leaves the English department and a reference needs to be required, as long as it's the head of school, it can be the business office, somebody is coordinating that effort so that the reference is actually a functional one. So it's not just a random phone call to the chair of the English department, who wasn't even there for most of the time that person was there and didn't know why they left, but that it's all going through one place. So an important reference question is, are you authorized to give this reference on behalf of the school? And you want to drill into your staff, like in terms of training, The reporting training is important, but trainings like this is actually kind of where you can thwart some of your liabilities and actually get better references for your staff as they go through. Um, This does come up with board members who are on the board, and nobody actually ever talks to them about this. Like They interacted a lot with certain staff members or whatever. Um, so, So to tighten that up again, I think that's a really easy lift for
0: schools. Thank you for listening to this Nice Ace Now podcast. Production support comes from Andrew Cook. Interview and conference support by Judith Sheridan and Barbara Swanson. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. For additional podcasts as well as information about our conferences and other programming, please visit our website, nysais.org.